Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Mark Sisson. Hello, and welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Sisson. Coming to you from the podcast studios in beautiful Malibu, California, where life is always awesome. Today, we're going to be talking about wine, one of my favorite topics. Uh, and not just because I love wine, because there was a time when I was sort of agnostic about wine. And uh, my own experience over the past 15 or 20 years has included drinking copious amounts of it and then going completely teetotaling and then coming back to it with a... Uh, bit of, um, shall we say, a modicum of restraint. And um, one of the guys that's helped me reframe my experience with wine is my buddy Todd White. Todd is here today with us. Todd's a bit of a renaissance man, but for the last 15 years, he's specialized in the natural health and wine business. He has dedicated his life to educating and helping people make better choices about food, nutrition, and how they think about consuming alcohol. He's the founder of Dry Farm Wines, a revolutionary wine production company, and a writer, speaker, and leading authority on healthy, organic, natural wines and the importance of microdosing alcohol for health, longevity, and vitality. An avid biohacker and health experimenter, Todd is also releasing an upcoming ketogenic cookbook called KetoWell that discusses his success in low-carb eating. Welcome, Todd. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. It's great to have you, and I'm very excited about our discussion today. I think I want to sort of lead off with explaining how we met. Uh, I was roaming the halls of the biohacking conference in Pasadena about, I'm going to say, six months ago now. And um, uh, your buddy David goes, uh, hey, kid, come over here. Uh, I go, what do, you, what do you got going on? He goes, I want to talk to you about uh, some, uh, some organic, healthy wine. I go, there's no such thing. He goes, come on, come on, let me, let me, let me hit you up. I go, ah, no thanks, and I walked on, and then I circulated the room a couple of times, and, hey, kid, get over here. So I, I come over a second time. No, I'm not ready yet. And finally, on the third time, that's where I get this, um, this introduction to you and to uh, what you're doing with these wines. And I was, I got to say, it was really skeptical because my experience with wine was I drank it religiously, I mean, almost literally, two glasses a night. Uh, for the last 15 or 20 years. I wrote about how healthy wine can be. I, re- I cited all the studies, you know, on resveratrol and on, uh, on teetotalers versus uh, moderate alcohol consumption. And I, and I sort of bought into this concept that wine can be good for us. And yet, I found myself uh, waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, just about every morning, and being unable to go back to sleep for an hour or so. And I just, it just didn't seem right to me. And then I, I realized also I wasn't waking up in exactly the right frame of mind, necessarily completely rested. And so I gave up drinking wine. I did a test. I did a 30-day test. And, and after 30 days, I go, this is great. I'm not drinking wine. I feel great. Uh, I feel better for not having been consuming wine. So it must be the wine was toxic, poisonous, bad for me. And I decided to live my lifestyle that way going forward for the next, uh, for, well, for, for the remainder of time, shall we say. But something was missing. Something about the wine. I don't know whether it was the, you know, the pageantry of opening the bottle or whether it was the, just, just the experience on a nightly basis or whether it was the edge it was taken off. But anyway, so, so Todd, you came over to my house. You basically invited yourself to my house for a wine tasting. And what happened there? I did basically invite myself, but what was really interesting about meeting you at Bulletproof, so I had stepped away from our booth and where we were the exclusive wine sponsor for the Bulletproof Conference for Dave Asprey. And if you haven't been, it's a terrific conference. And I had stepped away from our, from our display area, and I came back, and David said, Mark Sisson came by. And uh, I said, oh, that's cool. Where is he? So I looked around, and, and actually, I, he probably doesn't remember this, but I approached him 
three separate times. On the first two occasions, he kind of just blew me off. He was just like, you know, he's very nice. I was like, oh, he's such a, he's a nice and great guy, but he's highly skeptical. Um, so I, I finally had the third third approach. I was like, listen, you got to listen to me. I, this is this is real. And he's like, all right, well, get in touch with me, and and uh, and and we'll see what you know. We'll take it from there. So I then, as he said, basically invited myself to his Malibu home, where um, I might add, I arrived in in a kind of a loving family home. His dog was in the backyard dragging an irrigation hose up when I arrived. He was watching a football game I was interrupting. And so it was just a lot of kind of commotion when I got there. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going to go really well. Because I knew he was highly skeptical of my claims. But anyway, he and his wife, Carrie, uh, and, and I had a, a, did a tasting for maybe six wines. And I left another six behind. And I said, I'll reach out to you in a week. And so um, I did. And he, uh, he wrote back uh, a short and, uh, and he being me. Yeah. Mark wrote back a short yeah. email saying, hey, I'm a believer. This is this is real. And so we started to talk about what what makes what makes this difference and how, why do you feel better drinking these wines? And so a bit about my journey. I had uh, I've been ketogenic for two years. And as I started to get closer and closer to really dialing in my nutrition, I found that Having been in the wine business for a long time, I'm a lifelong wine drinker, and I really enjoy the pleasures of food and wine. It's just central to the culture that I live in. I live in the Napa Valley. It's central to the culture of community that I spend with my friends. So we, we just love food and wine and cooking and celebration of friendship. But I found that I couldn't drink standard wines anymore. I just, they were keeping me up at night. I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning. And as Mark has cited a mini podcast, um, when he talks about waking up at three o'clock in the morning, which is kind of an awesome thing, because as an entrepreneur, I've been self-employed since I was 17. So as an entrepreneur, when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you're usually waking up thinking about some kind of bullshit business problem. That's exactly right. Right. And so, so waking up was not a lot of fun in the middle of the night. In addition, I was getting up with brain fog. I just felt that my performance was off. I'm also an athlete, and I just felt that my, my performance was off. So I actually stopped drinking wine in a period of what I call suffering through sobriety, right? So I live in this culture, and alcohol permeates every part of our national culture and internationally, and, and living in the Napa Valley is certainly a, a big part of our culture there. But so something was missing in my suffering through sobriety. So I started experimenting. I've been making wine for a number of years in Napa. So I started experimenting with reducing alcohol levels and finding wines that had lower alcohol. Alcohol is a toxin, right? So is water and oxygen in the wrong dosage. And so I, I really, uh, with research and experimentation, begin to believe that and, ex and, and feel that the dosage of alcohol that I was consuming, the amount of alcohol, was really what was leading and causing me to feel bad. Uh, as, I, as I started to look at lower alcohol wines, I really focused in on European wines, which was the leading, uh, the leading area in the world for what are now known as natural wines. Uh, organically farmed, biodynamically farmed, very low intervention in the winemaking process. Um, you know, Dave Asprey on one of his podcasts about drinking said, you know, I only drink red wine that's older than I am. And that's his drink of choice when he drinks. Well, I, th the reason that makes a lot of sense is because winemaking techniques as we know them today uh, really started about 30 or 40 years ago. And, and with the use of chemicals and additives, uh, Roundup is the number one herbicide used in uh, vineyards across, across the world, particularly in the U.S. So the natural wine movement said, wait a second, These are, the, the natural wine movement was really founded and continues to be operated by what I would call kind of activist farmers, vigilantes, you know who have a very serious commitment to stewardship of land and the creation of a natural product. 
right? So these, these products are very, very different. So as we focused in on that, and I started drinking low alcohol wines. Now, alcohol in wine ranges categorically from 7% up to 24%. The wines that we drink and sell are 12.5% and below. Most of them range between 9% and 12.5%. I find much below 10 or 9 or 10% you, doesn't start to taste like a fine wine product anymore. Mm -hmm. It tastes more like a fermented kombucha kind of a product. Right. So, um, so we started focusing on, on these all-natural made wines, and we can talk a little bit about what composes a natural wine. But as I started to focus in on those, and started drinking them exclusively, I had this completely wildly different experience, which was very surprising to me. But if you read about the natural wine movement and people who are writing about it, and it was in Bloomberg this week, it's, the press is just on fire with the natural wine movement. And all of the articles and the producers and the people in the industry will all tell you the same thing. There's no hangover. I don't feel bad. I'm not waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, we take natural wines one step further. So we go out and curate wines, natural wines from all over the world, primarily Europe. We then bring those wines to a third-party independent certified enologist. And that enologist then runs a series of tests on our behalf to ensure our standards of purity. And there's a number of reasons that we need to do that. We're the only people in, in the world who do this. We're the only health quantified wine club. We're the only people who biohack wine. We have this kind of fanatical approach to understanding what's in the wine. As you may know, there are no nutritional labels on wine. And in fact, the only component reported on wine on a label is alcohol. And by law in the U.S., the alcohol doesn't even need to be, the stated alcohol doesn't need to be accurate. It can be as much as a percentage and a half off. So if you're drinking a wine that's marked at 13 or 14 percent, you could be drinking something that's 14 and a half or 15 and a half percent. We're going to talk shortly what a big difference a few points makes in terms of the alcohol that you're consuming. Right. So back to um, that sort of original concept of uh, the, the stewardship of the land. I mean, I think a lot of people know about the distinction between organic and non-organic and I'm sure that factors into choosing a healthy wine. But um, you make this argument that soil composition is often an underlooked factor. So let's just like starting with the soil composition. And you, you mentioned the Roundup being used in the conventional growing of, of grapes. The, the large, you know, the, the, the large wine producers employ. What does that look like? I mean, can a, an operation turn out very much wine if they're not, uh, you know, using all these mass producing techniques? What does that, what does that look like? No. So it's, it's really impossible to grow wine in large quantities or make wine in large quantities without using these chemicals, additives, and byproducts. So all the family farmers that we represent are all very small producers, typically not making more than 1,000 to two or 3,000 cases, which is, which is a very, very small production. But in speaking about soil composition, let's kind of back up to the all the farming practices and from the very beginning. So soil composition or what in the natural wine movement we call living soil is really about cover crops in the winter and, and a lack of irrigation, right? So none of our wines have irrigation and irrigation kind of begins the intervention process in a whole natural wine product. So if you think about if you think about a grapevine, an irrigated, which over 99% of all vineyards in the U.S. are irrigated. Now, they're irrigated because they produce more yield, and it can be, the yield and the product can be controlled more by the winemaker or the farmer. Uh, but irrigation, which is illegal in most of Europe, mm -hmm. when you irrigate a grapevine, the root ball of a grapevine is not much bigger on an irrigated vine than a basketball, a little bit larger, because an irrigated vine gets all of its nutrients, primarily liquid nitrogen, and water from the surface. So the vine is not searching for nutrient or water. In an unirrigated grapevine, the roots of that vine will reach 20, 40, and sometimes as much as 50 feet deep and, and around in its search for nutrition and water. And so 
in an unirrigated vineyard, in order to produce this living soil that, that really charges the, the plant with its energy, one needs to, to keep the, the, the land turned, keep winter cover crops in, in, to till back under for natural nitrogen and, and energy for the plant. Right. Now, um, when we first started talking about the differences of these wines, and you brought some, some really amazing little wines to the house, and I noticed uh, far different smells than I was used to. You know, I'm used to that big, thick, chocolatey, tobacco-y, oaky California, you know, deep, deep Cabernet or whatever. And what I, the smell that I was that I was getting from these these wines that you brought was a, in some cases lighter, but kind of funky, but in a good way funky. I mean, they had they had their own characteristics. Is is that a function of this? deep root system searching for unique nutrients or something? No, no, no. It's, it's a function of, at that point, the, yes, in part, because if you think about, if you think about any kind of a food product, um, your mayonnaise, as an example, which uses the highest quality avocado oil. By the way, amazing products. Um, at, it, one of the challenges of being ketogenic is... Um, just finding, just being able to consume enough fat. Yeah. And healthy fat. Healthy fat. Yeah. And, and as you know, the commercial mayonnaise products that are available, I'm from the South. You can probably tell I have a little accent. So I grew up in a love mayonnaise, but had to give up eating mayonnaise for many years because the commercially available products are just not healthy. Right. And many of them contain sugar, and I'm also sugar free. So so your mayonnaise product, for anybody who hasn't tasted it yet, the chipotle lime, I eat it with a spoon like ice cream, right? Yeah. And uh, it's just an amazing and, and delicious product. But, but let me get back to the basis, as I was talking about with your avocado oil and, mace, and mayonnaise. The basis of any food product is only as good as its ingredients. And for wine, that's grape juice, Right. And so an unirrigated vine produces, many believe, including me, produces a different character of fruit, a different flavor of fruit. I'm going to answer your question because mm -hmm. that's not the, the entire driver. But, but a healthy, natural vine that's unirrigated produces, in our view, a more complex and deeper fruit quality. So it'd be like if you went to the grocery store and you picked up a winter tomato and you squeezed the juice from it and you compare that juice to the squeezed juice of a summer ripe, fully developed natural tomato, you would see that the quality of those juices are very different, mm -hmm. taste very different, very different consistencies. But the same thing's true for grape juice. So the higher quality, the grape determines probably 90% or more of the quality of the wine. After that, it's the intervention from the winemaker. And that's where these flavors are really coming in. So in the wines that you're referring to, many Cabernets, many standard, we'll just call them standard wines, uh, are using heavy oak programs or oak additives or other compounds, color agents, texture agents, uh, modified yeast. So all of the wines, natural wines, are made with indigenous yeast that are wild to the vineyard where the grapes are grown. Commercial wines are made with commercial yeast, and those yeasts can be profiled to have certain tastes, banana, chocolate, uh, and these oak programs create a very different communication. So we're not talking about natural, real, pure wine. We're talking about a high intervention product where the winemaker has brought these flavors to your wine. Yeah, but they brought the flavors because that's what the buying public seems to demand, right? Well, I don't need to educate you about the sweetness of the American palate. Right. I'm sugar-free. You're largely sugar-free except for that coffee in the morning. <laughs> that's right. Um, so the American palate lends itself to a sweet demand. The vintner or the winemaker, their job is to sell wine. Mm -hmm. And so because of the American palate lends itself to sweetness, their job is to respond to that and sell wine. But there's a big emerging marketplace of people like the millions of people who follow you and other health influencers throughout the U.S. and the world. There's now millions of people who are searching for a different answer. And as a result of the way they have altered their palate and the habits of how they eat and drink, they don't want a sweet product. 
They want something that's more natural. And so when you when you make when a winemaker, which our, our winemakers are also the farmers, so they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., oftentimes you have a farmer and a winemaker who's a different guy, but all the family farms we represent, the guy who farms it is the same guy who's making the wine. So when you make a natural wine product, it has no additives, little or no preservative, and it has a, a cleaner, more natural, it's what real, pure, honest wines taste like. So what you're accustomed to drinking, mm-hmm. and when you first drink natural wines, you're like, oh, wow, this is kind of different. I don't really know what to make of this at first because it's outside of your, it's outside of your frame of reference. It's outside of your flavor reference. You know what's funny is that the first thing that came to mind was when we opened a couple of bottles was they tasted like old French wines. Right. Like really old French wines. What you're saying initially was, well, that's, that's because before they started putting crap into the wines, that's what wines tasted like. This is exactly what wines taste like. So it can be even in the beginning, and you'll read this in articles and, and when people write about natural wines. In the beginning, it can, I wouldn't say off-putting, but it's just like, oh, it's wow. It's just it's different. not what you're used to. Right. It's outside of your frame of reference for your palate. Right. Which is kind of exciting. Part of what we do with our, our, our members in our wine club, part of what we do is we curate wines from from obscure places with obscure grapes that you've never heard of. There are thousands of grape varieties. And most Americans have heard of Merlot or Chardonnay or Cabernet, but there are literally thousands of varieties. So what we do when we're out curating wines, we want to take you on an adventure. We want to take you to parts unknown. We want to challenge your palate to experience something new and different, right? So that like we do when we sit around, it's like, and, you know, as a wine oxidizes when it's open and it continues to change in the glass and take on this magical kind of elixir perspective, you know, we like that experience of kind of taking you around to experience natural wines from Hungary or Austria or Germany, delicious Pinot Noirs from Germany. So that's part of the experience we think you should enjoy mm-hmm. as a part of challenging and, and expanding your flavor reference. Right. So now I'm drinking more wine again. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and largely because I've joined the wine club. I like it. And I'm getting wine sent to me regularly. And I don't, part of the best part of this is I don't have to think about what I'm buying at the store, you know, and, and, and think about what Robert Parker had to say about, you know, what points these wines got um, because you're doing the curating for me. And I've noticed that um, a glass and a half, two glasses a night has no impact on my sleep, uh, no negative impact on my sleep. I sleep well, I wake up refreshed. So we talked initially about um, one of the issues with, with standard American wines, and now a lot of European wines as well, they're trying to appeal to an American palate. A lot of these wines have a lot of sugar in them. Now, I could not believe the amount of sugar that you quoted. You said up to 300 grams per liter. Right. So that's like 40 or 50 grams per generous pour. Right. So, so at, the, at the very highest end, we're talking about uh, late harvest or ice wines, dessert wines at, at the very highest, which, as you know, are very, very sweet. So categorically, wines can range from zero or near zero uh, grams per liter to as much as 300 grams per liter at the north end for dessert wines. Now, a reference point for the listeners, what that range means is that a liter of Coca-Cola has 108 grams of sugar. Mm, wow. Right. The wines that we curate and lab test, and the only way you're going to know whether a wine has sugar in it or not is to lab test it. It doesn't, you're not going to be able to discern. I can't, no one can discern the amount of sugar in a wine for this reason. Well, sometimes it tastes sweet, but oftentimes it doesn't, but can still contain sugar. We taste wines quite often. We taste hundreds of wines a month to select only a handful and then to put all of those through lab tests. A reason a wine may not taste sweet is if the underlying foundation of acid, if the acid level is high enough in the wine, this is quite common with German wines. If the acid level is high enough, the wine doesn't actually taste sweet, although it contains sugar. Mm. I'm rapidly anti-sugar, and I believe it's public enemy number one from, from a health perspective. We lab test every wine for a number of components, but sugar is among them. Our wines 
no wine we represent exceeds a gram per liter, which is statistically sugar-free. Yeah, because a bottle of wine is less than a liter. Right, 750 milliliters. Yeah. So it's, it's less than a gram. Right. Uh, in many cases, 0.2 tenths of a gram. Mm -hmm. So negligibly, it's, it's sugar-free. Actually, there's more alcohol in a non-alcoholic beer than, right. than that. Exactly. So, all right. So, but it, and back to the sugar. So, one of the one of the, obviously one of the issues with sugar is the the weight gain, uh, the insulin issues. Um, but but is it the sugar? Like I notice when I here's here's another way I've sort of been experimenting with this. So I have I have one of your wines at night. I feel great. But if I have a dessert with your wine, I'm back to square one. Right. So the way to be drinking these wines is to be is to be drinking them without sugar at the same time. Well, I mean, if you want, so so I like you. Um, Cheese is perfect. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No. Of course, of course. Yeah. I do a lot of self quantification. Yeah. And experimentation. And so the way to really, I tell people when I send them wines or I gift them wines, and you know, most people are skeptical about the claims until they experience it. And so as you were, so I want. So oftentimes we'll introduce wines to, to folks. And I'm like, listen, you can't drink anything else with these wines. Yeah. So don't have a cocktail and then have, you know, a bottle of our wine and then tell me, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't also mix it with other things. So if you're going to quantify the experience, you've got to isolate it. You and I happen to, to agree, as many health influencers do, that insulin is probably the leading cause of most chronic disease and weight gain. Mm -hmm. And it's the reason that I'm, I take it to an extreme being ketogenic, but, but so, so sugar, sugar is a very big deal, but cheese of course is a great compliment for our wines. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So the sugar is a, is a culprit. We talked about the, the alcohol content itself being a culprit, uh, at, at certain levels above what, 12 or 13%. I guess. I mean, at what point does, does alcohol become problematic within the context of a glass of wine? Or is, that, or is it just the absolute amount of wine that you choose to drink that night that, that, that's all that counts? In addition to the alcohol, it's the additives. The list of additives apparently is a long one. Oh, it is, and a nasty one. Yeah. And so, but I want to make sure we get to that. But so you may know that, that our government's not been completely honest with us about nutrition and diet. Get out of here. Seriously? No shit, dude. <laughs> All right. So, so they've also not been honest with us about alcohol. And let me tell you what I mean by that. And it's coming from the same group that's giving you the fine diet and nutrition information. So the American, the U.S. government says that all drinks are a standard drink unit. That's the official term, a standard drink. What is, and, and you've probably heard this. In a standard drink, what they say is that a beer, a glass of wine, and a mixed drink a jigger of alcohol or are all the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's just categorically not true. Right, right. Craft beers now can range up to legally up to 16% alcohol, right? Where historically beer had been in the three or three and a half percent range on alcohol. Wines can range from seven to 24%. And, Grain alcohol can range from 30 or 40% up to 100%. I had, 100%. I had 180 proof uh, rum in a unlabeled Which is nearly 100% alcohol. 90% alcohol, yeah. And uh, that was quite the experience. Right. Uh, so in, in Jamaica. I want to talk about spirits in just a moment and the effect of alcohol. But, but in 1987, in the UK, the government there developed a little more accurate way of measuring alcohol in a, in a given drink. A very accurate way, uh, trying to help their citizens understand how to regulate alcohol intake. Now, this formula is a little bit tricky, but I'm just going to run through it. If you search online, you just search alcohol unit UK, and all the results will come up explaining the formula. But in the in the UK, they call an alcohol unit 10 milliliters of, al of, of alcohol. ethanol. Yeah, but this is really important to view wine this way. And we're going to talk about why dose matters, how much, what we're trying to achieve. Like with fitness, with alcohol, I want the minimum effective dose, right? right? And then we're going to talk about what that effective dose looks like and what I'm trying to achieve uh, in, in a moment. But let me give you this, this formula and how, how an accurate way to look at alcohol intake. So one unit, 10 milliliters of ethyl alcohol in a five ounce glass is 148 milliliters. 
So to determine how many units, how many units of 10 uh, milliliters of alcohol are in a given beverage, in order to determine that, you take the milliliters mm -hmm. times the alcohol volume divided by 1,000. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In the U.S., we use the measurement of ounces, and so just to make your calculation easy, uh, 29.6 ounces, you would take the number of ounces times 29.6, and that will give you the milliliters. In, in a five-ounce serving, that's 148 milliliters. Five ounces, the historic sort of glass pour, pour yeah. for wine. And I want to talk about pour size and, and how to employ some tricks around drinking less and being more moderate in your drinking, because what we all know is that moderation really matters, dose really matters. But so you've got a five ounce pour of wine, that's 148 milliliters. If it's a 15% wine, that comes out to 2.22 units. Now, average person, it's gonna depend on age, weight, gender, but your average person will metabolize about one, one unit an hour. That's the 10. The 10 milliliters. Yes. The, a unit is 10. So 2.2 yeah. is 22 milliliters right. of, of right. ethanol. Yeah. That's right. So, so you'll, process, you'll process about 10 milliliters an hour. Mm -hmm. So if, if it's a 15% if, if wine, you're going to process a unit, and that's going to leave 1.2 units. That's what lay down for your buzz, right? Yeah. And, and so if you're, if you're over a three-hour period, and three glasses of wine, you're going to consume less what you burned off. Now, this is not because obviously this is not scientific because you're going to sure. burn, you're going to have some continual burn there. But, right. but just as a thought process, so you're going to have a net of 3.7 units over that three hours. That's what you're getting high from. Mm -hmm. right? Now, the difference is if you go down to a 12% alcohol, and none of the wines that we recommend, sell, or represent exceed 12.5%. And many of them are at 10 or 11. But if you look at a 12% wine, then your net units reduces from 3.7 to 2.3, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you look at spirits, as you know, in the paleo movement, and, and I've certainly been a part of drinking this at times, but in the paleo movement, the, the sort of drink of choice is the NorCal margarita, mm -hmm. which is three ounces of tequila, uh, some spritzer, and squeeze a lime. Right, so and the, the thinking behind that is that it's a distilled spirit is pure and clean, and we're not adding anything else to it that that's going to be an impurity right. in terms of the mixer. The problem with that is that over the same three hours and the same three drinks, instead of the two point three units that's driving your buzz from the twelve percent wine, you're now up to seven point seven units. Wow. Right, yeah. and so the problem with alcohol is it's a domino drug, right? So the further we go down the rabbit hole, the more likely we are to continue to fall in it, mm -hmm. right? So that's the reason it's really important not to cross that that barrier where we start to lose where we start to lose judgment, yeah, right? And then we start making kind of sloppy decisions. I'm going to talk in a, shortly about what I call the glorious exceptions, right? Should we talk about glorious exception? Let's do it. Yeah, what's, yeah right. why not? So a glorious exception is the case where it's a birthday. Yeah. It's a dinner with your bros. Yeah. Uh, for me this week, I had a glorious exception. So I attended a, a, a leap year party at Frog's Leap Winery, who every four years hosts this party. Now, there's going to be 800 people there. It's a very extravagant the theme was the last days of Pompeii. Wow. Right? Love. So it's like I was gladiator and everybody was in costume and there's 800 people. And I know going into that, this is going to be a glorious exception. Mm -hmm. Right? Party starts at 7 and runs till 2 or 3. It's very likely there's going to be an exception there. Yeah, it seems like with a toga party like that, you still want your faculties too, though. <laughs> well, well, you know, it, it was good. I, I, I was good, but I, I have some tricks on glorious exception. By the way, on, on the Frog's Leap thing, people ask me, write me, because I live in the Napa Valley all the time, and they say, hey, I'm coming to Napa, where should I go? Mm -hmm. Frog's Leap is one of the few organic farms and biodiverse, so they have bees and gardens and orchards, and I think probably the best hospitality program 
in Napa, they're also dry farmed. Mm. And we're very instrumental in helping get me educated on the whole dry farming. So just, this is the first time you've really used the term dry farm other than the name of your company. So what does dry farm mean exactly? That means there's no irrigation. So no yes. irrigation. So that's the, that's the definition. No irrigation. Okay. That's, that's, so you also have dry farm tomatoes and right. you have other. But does that include uh, or does that have anything to do with the use of, of uh, you know, pesticides and other things as well? Or is it just specific to the lack of irrigation? It's specific to the lack of irrigation. Okay. However... That being said, any in the U.S. Now, remember, irrigation is illegal in Europe, so this doesn't. This same statement doesn't mm -hmm. apply to European farming. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., the guy who dry farms, I mean, he's he's he's, he's like fanatical. That. He's in that he's right. in that space already. He's in so, that yeah. headspace, right. man. He's okay. not using yeah. Roundup. Yeah. If he's a dry farmer mm -hmm. in the U.S., but the interesting thing about dry farming in Napa Valley, where I live, there wasn't a single irrigated vineyard. Until the 1970s, wow. it was all dry farmed, right? And so it just it just really happened in the last few decades mm -hmm. that irrigation. Now it's over 99 percent of Napa Valley is irrigated. Mm -hmm. Frogsleep is one of the very few places that that is not irrigated, but but also runs this amazing biodiverse farm and right. you know, amazing organic kind of right. experience. So. Um, but, but let me talk about the Glorious Exception a little bit further for just a moment. On Glorious Exceptions, I, I think you need to prepare yourself for that. And so there's a few, the main thing that you can do to prepare yourself is make sure you stay hydrated, mm -hmm. right? So make sure that you're drinking lots of water throughout the, the course of your right. experience. That's easy to forget to do, particularly in a, you know, a party environment. So and you just got to stay hydrated. That was, I mean, that was, for some reason, that was always easy for me. There was always a point at which I felt... It was time to switch from drinking wine or whatever it was I was drinking to consuming water. And I would, I've had that, I don't know, I would call it a sense of self-preservation to be able to know where that switch was and be able to just say, okay, it's time to switch over to water for the rest of the evening. Had, you know, had my fun, got, got my buzz, but, you know, I, I, I need to be able to function and sleep when I get home and all these other things. So um, I've always been aware of that hydration, but it's, it's critically important for sure. Listen, man, let's, let's be perfectly clear. You are the exception to most rules. Okay. Right? And so you have this amazing discipline and you're super focused, but there are a lot of listeners, many, myself included, who are not quite that disciplined in, in some ways. And so we really have to think hydration because that's what's going to impact your sleep and also your hangover or brain fog the next day in addition to the alcohol. Right. So. If you're going to have what I call a glorious exception, which I have them from time to time, I bet you even have them from time to time. You know, I, I, mean, I suppose it depends on what you, how you would uh, uh, calibrate that. Well, I've been with my wife 27 years, and she's never seen me drunk, so I've never really been drunk. But I get to that, I just get to that space. Sure. But, you know, I'm also the guy that never pulled an all-nighter. I value sure. sleep so highly that I never spent the entire night awake, um, even as a teenager. Uh, so maybe I do have that that ability to sort of know where the switch is. Right. But, um, but I've, been, I've been drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And I pull small nighters. Well, I've been drunk, so. but, but, but not, not since my, you know, not since the early days, not since I learned that I didn't like to throw up that much. Anyway. Oh, no, 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 no. No throwing uh, up. Yeah, yeah. No throwing up. Yeah. So, so the alcohol, let me just, we get back to that for a second. So where, even though you talk about like 12% or 15% wine, Remember, if you're drinking a wine in the U.S. and it says 14% on the label, it could be 15 and a half. There you go. In addition to the fact that even though it's not required to be accurate by law, there's no enforcement around it. So anyway, dosage really matters in alcohol. Let me talk just for a moment about dosage and why that's what we call microdosing. You can microdose in theory by enjoying a single glass of wine over the course of an evening. But that's just not how most of us And drink. who does that? Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's just not how most of us drink. Certainly yeah. my friends don't drink that yeah. way. And, and so I want to be able to enjoy several glasses over the course. In our case, it's usually dinners at night. I don't really drink in the daytime. Um, it's just a personal preference. I don't want to stop my fat burning in the daytime, as yeah. you know. The moment you start putting alcohol in, you're going to you're going to temporarily yeah. Suspend. So you don't you don't destroy your your ketosis, but you just stop burning fat. You stop burning fat because they're sugar free and carb free. Our wines have zero impact on ketone production, so I do regular ketone testing right. via blood, which is the gold standard for mm -hmm. 
for uh, ketone mm -hmm. testing, as you know. Um, so th there's no impact on ketosis or even blood sugar for that matter. Right. But what it does do, if I drink at lunch, what it is going to do is it's going to suspend my fat burning. Yeah, so the body preferentially burns out ethanol. It um, does. Partly because it's a toxin and, and partly because there's, it, it supplies seven calories per gram. It's a legitimate fuel. Um, but you wouldn't want to be fueling on no, 100% of no. the time. But yeah. But that, by the way, that's interesting because uh, even when people drink uh, wine on a regular basis and they sometimes plateau in their weight loss efforts and they've done, they, they you know, tell me, Mark, I've embraced the primal blueprint. I've cut the carbs way down and I'm watching how I exercise and move. I think I've got everything worked out, but I'm, I've hit a plateau and I go, well, are you, are you drinking, you know, at night? They go, yeah, well, I have a couple of glasses of, of alcohol every night. Well, that's what's going on. That's, that's sort of a time when you should be burning some fat if you're trying to lose weight. But if you're stopping that whole fat burning process so your body can burn off the ethanol, that's a real consideration. It is. But, and again, this is one of the reasons why I don't drink during the daytime, daytime yeah. and I yeah. just don't enjoy drinking during yeah. the daytime. Uh, but I would take it a step further for these people who are plateauing and believing that wine might be the cause. If they're drinking standard wines, particularly white wines, with, it's with very likely sugar, yeah. that they're consuming a lot of hidden sugar they yeah. don't know about. Correct, yeah. Right, and so I would contend that in addition to, or perhaps more importantly than the loss of fat burning during those evening hours, the that addition the of sugar. addition of sugar is driving yep. blood glucose and consequently insulin and fat storage. There you go, okay. So I, I think that's more important than stopping. I know it doesn't have any impact on my weight, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, in fact, I became ketogenic because I had plateaued, right? That's the right. reason originally, as most people, like our friend Jimmy Moore, as most people, um, most people choose ketogenic to lose weight. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need or want to lose any more weight. You I just, just like the way you feel now, right? Dude, the brain buzz, the yeah. cognitive effects are amazing, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm buzzing on ketones right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's a lifestyle choice now. It's not I don't not trying to lose any weight, but yeah. that's how most people start. But people who do want to lose weight, this might be a good if and, and if you like to enjoy a glass of wine or two with uh, the evening meal, um, this this method of drinking these clean wines uh, would be a great alternative. No question about it. And there are many people who like wine, and and when when I let me come back to the micro dosing thing for a moment. Most of the time when we drink wines. I'm looking to get that gentle lift, yeah. right? And that's the reason I want to be very careful about the amount of alcohol. And so I can choose to consume less of higher alcohol mm -hmm. or more of, or be able to consume a little bit more of a lower alcohol product. Go for the more of a low, lower alcohol. I, I want to enjoy yeah. that, yeah. celebrate that. If yeah. we're having dinner, I want to, what, what, what I'm looking for and where I think, remember I said earlier, alcohol is a toxin, but but we, we know that virtually every medical authority in the world recommends moderate servings of red wine yeah. for resveratrol, other polyphenols. So I, I think it's a, it's, a health, it's a health food, and, mm -hmm. I, and I consume it daily. But, but the moderation thing gets a little bit tough with these higher alcohol wines. Right. What I'm looking for is that euphoria, right? So in a communal setting where we're having dinner, but I don't want to tip over where I'm losing what I call creative expression, mm -hmm. right? So when you have that little bit, this is the beautiful thing about alcohol, an awesome, awesome thing about alcohol. So when you have that lift, that euphoria, when you're still creatively expressive and you're having conversation with your friends and you're animated, right? And it just turns the volume up just a little bit, right? right? That's where you want to stay. And when you want to stay at the same time, it lowers inhibitions just a bit. And so when we drink together, we're more likely to have a bonding experience because it lowered inhibition just a bit makes you a tad bit more vulnerable, mm -hmm. more likely to share things with me that you might not normally share. And that's one of the magics of why people bond and have this amazing experience and drinking buddies mm -hmm. and, you know, have right. kind of this friendship around dinners and, and drinking. But you got to keep that alcohol dose low. Very, very important. If not, then we're going to get into the wrong space. We're right. not going to be creatively expressive. Right. So uh, we talked about the sugar content. We talked about the alcohol content. Uh, what, what are some of the additives that uh, 
we would find in wine and do these additives in, in standard wines um, and do these additives uh, have have a physical effect on sleep and on how we feel and on hangovers and you know any of the other negative things that we might associate with drinking well we we believe that they do there's not a lot of research there there's just not a lot of research available nobody to fund it but antidotally yeah. i can tell you and you can tell me that drinking these natural wines is a very different experience right. than how you feel a very different experience i can't even drink standard wines anymore I don't like the taste of them. I just can't drink them. I found that to be true. As a matter of fact, I went out with some friends uh, recently, and uh, somebody got a really nice big bottle of uh, expensive, expensive California Cab, which used to be one of my favorite wines, and and it just didn't taste right to me. It didn't. No, it tastes sweet. Yeah, it tasted fun. It, 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 it tastes right. like it has chemicals in it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because it does. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and 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 this treatment of wines is not isolated to just cheap wines. These the winemaker's job is to make wine most often to make it quicker, not better, mm -hmm. with fewer risks and higher profits. And, and a consistent taste. And a consistent the, taste. Yeah, which, is, right. which I, I would think if I were using, the more additives I were using and the more I controlled the yeast and not using the indigenous native yeast, um, clearly the more consistent I could make a batch of you know 50,000 barrels versus um, expecting the, the native yeast to, to do all the work and to have it all be consistent throughout a large, a large production like right. that. So native yeast is, is much more difficult to work with and also very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Native yeast also dies off at a lower alcohol level. So all alcohol will kill all yeast. Mm -hmm. At 16, 17%, even commercial yeast will, will die off right. and may need to have a restarted fermentation, but native yeast will not, will not right. tolerate that kind of alcohol. Let me go to the additives. And listeners should pay very close attention to this, as I know you and I have had discussions around this. There's 76 chemical additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. You can find them online if you just search FDA wine-approved additives. Mm -hmm. Google will bring the list up for you. They include things like ammonia phosphate, copper, defoaming agents. Foam occurs in a tank when you move wine from one tank to the other. Right. Well, patient, vigilant, natural winemakers allow the foam to settle. Mm -hmm. Well, there's chemical agents for making it go we'll away. quickly, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, again, I, it, standard winemaking practice, not only in the U.S., but worldwide, has not been, in most cases, to make better wine, mm -hmm. is to make faster wine. Yeah. Right? But there's 76. Here's the real shocking thing. There's 76 chemical additives approved by the FDA. Of the 76... 50% or, or half, 38 of them. When you go online, if you look at the list, there, mm -hmm. 38 of them include an acronym GRAS. Generally regarded as safe. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So there's no research, there's nothing here. There, yeah. there, nobody's funded any research to say whether these chemicals and additives are making you feel better. Right. But by their own admission, the FDA says that half of them yeah. are generally regarded as safe. Innocent until proven guilty. Right. That doesn't give me any yeah. real confidence yeah. about what it's doing yeah. to my body or how it's making right. me feel. The alcohol industry has very successfully fought very hard to keep those to keep labels off of wine. Yeah. Right. So there's no there's no. You don't have to disclose any of those additives. Not yeah. at all. Right. And and they're not tested for, and nobody knows whether they're there or not. Mm -hmm including one of the largest, most popular aftermarket additives is called Mega Purple. Mm -hmm. And Mega Purple makes wine darker. Sure. It's so. a color agent. Sure. Because Americans have been led to believe or somehow came to the impression that the darker a wine is, a red wine, mm -hmm. the darker it looks, yeah. the better it is, right? The richer it sure. is. Sure. Yeah, makes right? sense. But makes sense, you know, to think that. Oftentimes what they're looking at yeah. is a color agent. Yeah. Have you ever gotten purple teeth oh, from yeah. drinking some of these yeah. wines? You well, don't get purple teeth no, no, from but, drinking our wines. No, but, but you, the know, mustache? you get the, the mustache, yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, so anyway, the 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 primary additive that is different in natural wine, the only additive that's used in any natural wine is uh, is sulfur or sulfites. So if you look on a bottle of wine, the sulfite thing is a bit of a red herring. There's more, you know, there's more sulfites in a bag of potato chips or in a fruit bar than, than a bottle of wine. Right. 
right? A wine contains virtually very little sulfites relative to other food types. Right. And sulfates have gotten kind of a bad rap for making you feel bad and, and people having allergies to them. Very few people have actual allergies. But what sulfites do are not only preserve, what sulfur does is not only preserve a wine, but it sterilizes the wine. Mm-hmm. And this is when, when you talk about, you know, this kind of consistent taste where fine wines all have this kind of, you know, consistency about them. And they don't have this natural kind of soul that you find in, in, uh, in natural wines. Mm-hmm. That consistency is coming from sterilization. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure to mitigate this risk that there could be any spoilage or any uh, secondary fermentation or anything going on in the wine as it sits on the shelf or mm-hmm. as it moves around the country. Mm-hmm. Right. And so standard wines have a much higher dose of sulfur than natural wines. Most natural wines have no added sulfur or very little. When mm-hmm. I say very little, um, typically we're talking about less than 20 parts per million. Wow. You, now, the U.S. limit is 350 parts per million, and your average wines range from you know, 100 to 200 parts per million right. in terms of this preservative. So you mentioned, well, we talked earlier about... Um, in an earlier conversation about tannins, histamines, maceration, uh, and coloring. And so how do those, how do all those things interplay here? Again, there's not, there's not a terrific amount of research. And so there's a bunch of controversy. And if you search, uh, histamine, uh, biomine in wine, or you search histamine or, um, there's a big posting on Wikipedia for red wine, hangover, red wine, headache. So, the leading thinking is, while sulfites are mentioned, I don't know anybody credible, in my view, who believes that sulfites are causing these problems, except for the rare number of people, very rare number of people who have sulfite allergies. Mm-hmm. But this is super, super rare. It's, it's generally thought to be histamine and tannin. And I, I take it a step further. I, I think that there's probably some weird shit going on with these heavy new oak programs which wine was never historically made that way. Mm-hmm. So a new oak program is literally a new oak. In other words, they're aging wines in new oak. New oak. And new oak is just fresh-cut oak that right. has all of the, right. well, the natural resins of the oak, some of which could be, I, I suspect, problematic. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I, I just know that based on the anecdotally how I feel after drinking those wines, we don't really know what's in them. But I just know that heavy oat programs have a certain taste and style that just seems like it's not right, mm-hmm. right? Historically, winemakers, particularly in Europe and small winemakers, couldn't afford to buy new oak. New oak barrels today are $1,000 a piece, right? Mm-hmm. These are these, now oak will go neutral after three or four or five years, depending upon the barrel. Mm-hmm. So Many of these big oak vats that you see in natural winemaking, they're all old vats that can that impart no yeah. oak flavor or compounds because they're just kind of spun out. Right. Uh, so, so tannins, the histamine, I, I believe, just based on my own experience, so when I drink these, these standard wines, and I'll talk about the maceration and the kind of soak process and what creates expanded histamine, but... I can get this sort of feeling. It's not a headache. It's not a hangover, but it's just right between my eyes, just above my nasal. I can feel this heaviness, mm-hmm. right? And that's histamine. Mm-hmm. I can feel that. Do you know what I'm talking no, about? Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can feel that. Yeah. You don't get any of that from our wines. And what creates, there are two things that really drive histamine development in wine. One, the type of grape. So a thicker skin grape, like Cabernet, which is a very thick skin grape, produces higher histamine. And, but more importantly, long soaks, these macerations. So, so a soak is when the juice sits on the skin or the skins are, are macerating with the, with, with, with the juice. And the reason that white wines have no skin contact, it's just free run juice, mm-hmm. right? Well, even when you squeeze the ju- juice from a red grape, from a, red, from a Cabernet grape, it's clear, clear. Yeah. right? And so color is derived from soaking um, the skin. The skin. Or it could also be stems and seeds. And yeah. That's where the tannins are coming from, right? Mm-hmm. From, typically from seeds and stems and mm-hmm. some from the skin. But 
again, back to this color issue that Americans believe that a darker a wine is, the better it is, mm-hmm. right? So how do you get the wine darker? You leave it on the soak on the skins longer. That also creates much higher histamines. Right. Same thing for tannin. Right. So then, and that might be an explanation as to why you get more of that um, that center of the forehead. Yeah, it's not issue. really. It's not a headache. It's yeah, just yeah. kind of a tightness. Yeah, there. No, it's kind it. of a heaviness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of a heaviness. Or a just, stuffiness. Or a, yeah, know, it's just kind of a stuffiness. That's yeah. histamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this happens with these. This happens with these wines that get these longer soaks. And this is particularly true, particularly at premium wines, right. where they can afford to soak. So, how many how many wineries around the or wine producers around the world actually? farm and produce according to these methods that we're talking about today. It's hard to get a, it's hard to get an exact number, but we estimate it's fewer than five hundred. Right. And we we represent about a hundred of these natural winemakers at the at the moment worldwide. And you're expanding that we are. We are. So you want to be the leading provider of natural wines. We're the only health quantified yeah. wine merchant and wine club in the world. Right. So not only are we a leader in natural wine sales and helping and mainly educating people. All I need to do is educate you. It's like when I met you. You You don't want to hear anything about it, right? I mean, highly skeptical, Yeah. right? And so it's it's just really an education issue. The wine sells itself. Mm -hmm. Like when you start drinking it, as you noted, when you tasted this Cabernet at, Mm -hmm. you know, some probably dinner with a bunch of your buddies and you know, big wine comes to the table. Once you start drinking natural wines, once you start drinking our wines, you don't go back. Right. I don't have to. That I don't have to worry about losing you as a customer. Right. Uh, and you know, the perhaps the greatest benefit is these are not expensive wines. Oh, better news, right? Yeah. So our wines average retail twenty two dollars a bottle. Yeah. Right. Which is not you know that that's not cheap, but in the wine for a fine wine product. That's very inexpensive. You can't buy Napa Valley. Most Napa Valley wines start at that and go up. Oh, from start there. start forty. I mean, the average yeah. is yeah. about sixty-five dollars on yeah. average. Yeah. Right. And so, to be able to drink a fine wine product at a reasonable price, mm-hmm. right? Even you know, for some people, you could say it's an everyday wine. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I mean, I, so so my experience right now is that my wife and I are going through six bottles a month. Um, we could be going through more, but that's what we're getting on our program. So how, how can our listeners partake in these amazing natural wines? Well, we have, uh, we're going to make a special offer to your listeners. Um, your listeners can go to our website or to the website we've designated for, for your listeners with a special one-cent bottle of wine. So we're going to send them a bottle of wine for one cent. Wow, that sounds like a deal. Okay. Yeah. So it's dryfarmwines.com forward slash mark. Again, it's dryfarmwines forward slash mark. And I will will put a link uh, also on the show notes here uh, with this podcast so they can get there that way as well. And um, anything else that we need to to cover before we wrap it up here and go have a glass of wine? Yeah, just I want to say, you know, I want to speak on behalf of what must be millions of people who have a profound respect for what you do and the amazing amount of leadership and data that you brought to your audience. And I've been a follower for a long time and uh, I just um, just read Primal Endurance. Uh, it's my new living Bible for optimizing life. It's a great book. It's an awesome. So it, yeah. it, 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 you and Brad yeah. did an amazing job of writing what, is I think just one of the greatest pieces of work on on endurance and fitness ever. And uh, if you haven't read it, you you should definitely pick up a copy. I read it in like two days. I was just kind of glued into it. But but more importantly, I really appreciate. I love hearing you interviewed on podcasts because here's the one thing that that I really respect about you. And I've told you this before. I really respect your style of communication. And the way you kind of deconstruct and unpack complicated topics and keep them simplified. And here's the one thing that really I think is so awesome. You don't talk to your listeners in a way that you're trying to impress them with your knowledge. Now, there are some influencers who have that, mm. that vibe, right? 
So you don't have that. You talk to me like you're trying to teach me something and trying to help me. And there's a big difference in that style of communication. So I just want to say, oh, hey, I appreciate that. man, thanks for what you do. Well, thank you, Todd. Thanks for, and thanks for coming today. And thanks for uh, reawakening my, my interest in wine. Um, I'm very excited about the future. and I'm very excited about your program. So uh, listeners, if you um, are interested in taking the next step, in terms of accessing healthy wines and including that in as part of your paleo or primal eating strategy, by all means, take advantage of this one cent offer. Um, that's it for today. That's a wrap. I'm Mark Sisson, your host, coming to you from the Malibu Primal Blueprint Podcast Studios. See you next time. Got a passion for primal? Join Mark Sisson on a mission to save the world. Become a Primal Blueprint certified expert today. With our dollar down payment program, it's easier than ever. Just pay $1 to start and $89 a month for the next 12 months. The Primal Blueprint Expert Certification is the most comprehensive online Primal Paleo certification program of its kind. Explore the fascinating world of ancestral health from the comfort of your own home with this premier multimedia experience. Perfect for health and fitness professionals, as well as individuals looking to up-level their primal practice. Visit primalblueprint.com slash get hyphen certified to put a dollar down today.